and good afternoon. Good afternoon. Welcome to another edition of the Dr. James Show. I am Dr. James Smith Jr. And boy, let me tell you, I am super excited about the subject for today, about the guests we have for today, about the learning and the pearls that are going to be shared. So I'm going to cut my intro real short. Shannon, Shannon, Shannon Peck, my co-pilot, come on in. Are you excited about today? I mean, TGIT, right? Thank God it's Tuesday. <laughs> I'm excited. I'm refreshed. I had a three-day weekend. I'm not going to lie. You know what I'm saying? I'm feeling I, I, excited about today. I know you always do your, your research on our guests and yep. your research on the topic. What is making you particularly excited about today and about what we're going to talk about? Well, we have a guest today that I'm a little starstruck on and I, you know, I, I've been listening to for years and, and the radio stations and, you know, I'm old school. My daughter's 16. She makes fun of me that I still listen to the radio and I still like, why are you listening to the DJ talk? And yes, because I, I want to receive everything. And then we have another guest we can receive more information from. Again, Dr. James, I, I, you know, I know you hired me to be here and co-host with you, but I'm selfishly every week. It doesn't even feel like work because your guests are phenomenal. I look forward to Tuesdays. Um, they're like my Friday. Um, so I'm, I'm here to learn and I'm here to ask. I'm here to receive. So again, like I tell you all the time, it's like gravies and biscuits. I'm just here to get what I can get. And I hope our guests are too. And thank you, guests. Oh my goodness, our faithful listeners and our viewers, make sure you light up that chat room, write in your comments, ask your questions, and within the hour, we're going to do our best to get them in here to uh, ask our, our two panelists today. All right, let me give their intros and then bring them out. One has been on radio for some time. She is the news director and community affairs director for six iHeart Media radio stations. That's Lorraine Ballot Morrow. And we also have Michael Williams. And I call Michael a trauma therapy whisperer. He's also an adjunct faculty at Eastern, Eastern University and pastor, associate pastor at Careview Community Church. So Lorraine, Michael, welcome to the Dr. James Show. Great to be here. All right. Oh, Very glad right. to be with you this, this morning. Good to see you. Good to see you. I want to dive right in because we have so much to talk about. Uh, Lorraine, Michael, give us just a, a snapshot of who you are. What do you do? What is everyday like for you? Just give us a snapshot who you are and, and what do you do? Um, I'll start I with the rain. Yeah. I'll start. Okay. Um, well, I, I, as you mentioned, I'm the news and community affairs director for the six iHeart media stations. Uh, that includes Power 99, WDAS, Q102, The Breeze 1061. Uh, we also have Q102 and The Gambler. And uh, so there's six very distinct and very different stations. So I, I love interacting with all of them because they're so different. I do a lot of uh, interaction with the community. That's really my heart. And I also host a couple of shows on public affairs programs that are on Sunday. And I love doing that because I get to meet some extraordinary people making a huge difference. I've been hey, in Lorraine, the how, Lorraine, how, how, many, how often have you heard someone say, you have an amazing voice? <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Um, I guess uh, occasionally, yes. 
<laughs> Very good. Michael, how about you? Well, uh, these days I'm doing a lot of telehealth stuff. Uh, I wear a lot of hats these days. I, um, I like you mentioned, uh, I'm a professor at Eastern University adjunct. So I do teaching. Also, I do provide therapy uh, with uh, Dr. Randolph Walters and Associates and also uh, sexual addictions treatment services where I work with men who have some sexual behavior problems. And also, uh, last but certainly not least, my church family, Careview Community Church, as we've called it over the pandemic, Careview Nation. And so uh, just busy with that. Love my church family, love my family, just love serving people in the capacity that I have. Thank you, thank you. I feel your, your spirit coming through the, uh, the virtual space. Question for both of you. When did Black history become important to you? When did Black history become important? Lorraine, how about you? Well, I would say ever since I was a kid. Um, in I think I was around 12 or 13 when my dad uh, went from being in the military for 38 years, winning a bronze star, by the way, in the Korean War, to teaching Black history and law at McKinley Votech in Washington, D.C. So for me, Black history was every day because he talked about it a lot. He was very enthusiastic about sharing Black facts. And so I think I got a very early exposure to Black history. And we're talking, I guess it would be somewhere in 1968, 69, and, and that general area. Um, so it, it came pretty early for me. Ray, what, what, what was that like? I mean, did you go get your notepad and sit down and wait for the lesson? Or did you like, here we go again? Or what was it like being well, I look growing up with an expert? I look back on it and I think of my dad as a griot, um, an oral history storyteller. He was an amazing storyteller. That was really one of his gifts. And so it really wasn't like sitting me down and opening a book and saying, well, you know, this person invented blood transfusions or whatever it was. He incorporated it not only in the Black facts, the history, but also his own history because he had a very rich history. His family uh, was amazing. My grandfather was in the first graduating class of Meharry Medical College, which was the first wow. Black medical school. Wow. And so... Um, he had some amazing stories to tell, and I was very glad to absorb those stories and maybe tell some of those stories later in life, especially after he passed. Ooh, powerful, powerful. Michael, how about you? When did Black history become significant or important for you? As I look back on it, uh, I had a fifth grade teacher in Bryan Elementary School. Her name was Miss Burnett. Uh, it was, I think she was the first African-American teacher that I had. And particularly back then it was Black History Week. And, but she chose to teach about Black history and African studies throughout the year. And she taught us about the great civilizations of Africa, of Mali and Ghana. And then as a freshman in college at Temple, uh, I took an African-American studies course. And I remember in that course, that just ignited in me a hunger or a thirst even to learn more about our people because so much of this we did not get in growing up in the Philadelphia public school system. Yeah. 
we had Black History Week and it was basically Martin Luther King and Harriet Tubman. And while those two are definite giants and icons in, in our history, uh, there are so many others and so many other facts uh, and issues and tremendous people. And so I'd say that course at, when I was at Temple really ignited a thirst in me to learn all that I can to research. And it's, it's been a bit of an avocation amongst the other things I do. Yeah. Uh, but it's like whenever I get time, I'm diving into some historical narrative, some new things, because there's been new things that are being discovered about our history every day. Lorraine, what does it mean to you now? I mean, raised with the history, now you're sharing the history, you work in the community. What does the significance of this history, I'm not gonna say this month, this history mean to you? I think one of the challenges right now is being able to share the history, to share the stories, to share the contribution in a much fuller way. Because until this history was erased for the most part in the history of this country, black history was erased. And I think the vast majority of people, even with Black history, don't really understand the full contributions of Blacks in, uh, in this country. And I think that what Black history can provide and should be really part of 365, not just a month, is that it, it allows us to understand each other more fully. When you look at the history that we learn in books and in school, you see the con contributions of white males. And that's our conception of what this country was and how it was founded, but that's not the full story. And until we tell the full story, we can't be whole as a nation. That's, that's how I feel. Michael, what do you say to the people who say, I wish we didn't have to have Black History Month? Or why? Why are we having Black History Month? You have thoughts about that? <laughs> yes, definitely. Uh, there are a number of responses I would have. I think the first of which is that, like uh, Ms. Ms. Morrow pointed out, so much of our history has been hidden and stolen uh, and uh, discarded. And I think that the narratives that have been pushed on us through the media, through history, through laws, has done some damage to us as a people. Um, I think it has stolen the knowledge of ourselves from us. And I think that has harmed us as people to a large extent. And it, it harmed our esteem. Uh, Dr. King said that um, uh, racism in America and American history has kind of uh, bestowed on African-Americans uh, a degenerating sense of nobodiness. And I think to learn about our history to learn about the greatness of our people and the great achievements of our people uh, lifts us from an esteem perspective and it dispels uh, so much of the negative narrative that has been placed on us as African-Americans through media, through teachings like a eugenics, which is a kind of an empty science talking about the uh, worth of uh, a higher worth of one people group over another. And so I think to study black history and to learn about it, it instills in us a sense of pride. And I think there are some things that it heals deep within us as a people and it bestows honor upon us. And to see that African-Americans have participated in every rung of society in America, everything that has been achieved, achieved greatly in America, 
black people have been a part of since from Crispus Attucks, you know, the space race, which we just learned about how through um, uh, the mathematicians, the black female mathematicians who took part in that. So we have have a great imprint upon American history. Sure, sure. Shannon, what's going on? What's going on? Well, we've got we've got a comment in the chat room just at agreeing until we tell the whole story, we can't be a whole nation in agreement with that. This question's for either both of you or one of you, whoever wants to answer, but you know, what do we say to those who have not fully educated themselves or immersed themselves into black history? Um, where does one begin that's not so obvious? Is there any tips you can give our viewers and listeners where to start? You want to learn more folks, even, even in the um, Brown community that might not have immersed themselves into their own history. Um, and those who just want to know more, where, where do we start? Wow, that's such a huge question because there's just such a vast ocean of knowledge and information. I think one of the most enjoyable ways to do it is to check out movies. Um, for instance, I just saw One Night in Miami. And while it may not have been extremely historically correct, I think what it did for me is that it gave me a better sense of what these these individuals who were depicted in the movie, Muhammad Ali, Malcolm X, um, uh, Sam Cooke, and uh, Jim Brown, um, those four men, it, it really gave me such a, a curiosity about them. And it made me Wikipedia, the death, you know, all of the, the characters. I mean, I knew quite a bit about some of them, but I didn't know so much about some of the others. And so um, you go on to Amazon Prime, for instance, or any of the uh, platforms, and you'll find that they have specifically set aside uh, segments that allow you to see different movies that are connected with our history. For instance, Four Little Girls, it's on HBO Max. I mean, that's about the church bombing in Birmingham that killed four little girls. There's so much out there that is fantastic and really um, edifying and enjoyable at the same time. Watching something like uh, Lovecraft Country, for instance, um, while it's a fiction, it's fantasy, it also very movingly and really horrifically talked about what sundown towns were like that you had to leave that town by the end of the, the day or you could die. And they captured the horror, the fear, what it must have been like to exist in a society, in, in a situation where your life, I mean, certainly aspects of that still exist now, but to see that depicted in the way that it was, in a way that's so accessible, I think, to the general population, the public, I think is, is really one great way to start. Wow. Wow. How about you, Mike? Uh, I would definitely agree with that as uh, there are more black stories being told in the media. I think, uh, I think it's proven to be not bankable as well as interesting. So I think there's more um, programs that have been coming out uh, for instance, this weekend, I got a chance to see Judas and the Black Messiah, which told the story of uh, the Black Panther movement and particularly focusing on Fred Hampton. And these are things that I didn't necessarily know a lot about. And like uh, Ms. Morrow, I Wikipedia'd 
uh, Fred Hampton to find out some more of the specifics. And so we do have that. I think podcasts are another um, um, medium for today. I usually listen to podcasts when I'm commuting to and fro. And there are a lot of very substantive uh, Black history programs. Uh, and so that can stimulate a lot. But I think there's just, you know, everybody's not a reader. But uh, there are so many books that I see as must-reads, such as The Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, uh, which gives you an idea of what it was like to be enslaved. And I, I use the term enslaved uh, because uh, our people were put in slavery. We were not born slaves. We're, we're born as equal individuals. And so that book, that autobiography written by Frederick Douglass gives you an idea of, of, of what it was like. And even some of the societies in Africa, there's one book I highly recommend uh, called Barracoon, which tells the story of a man who was captured from Africa. It tells of his life in Africa as a, a free man growing up with the society was like, how he was captured and how he was transported here to America, lived through the Civil War and even afterwards up until the 30s. And so uh, it gives you an idea of what our people experience. And another um, other material I would recommend is by uh, Isabel Wilkerson, The Warmth of Other Sons, which tells the story of three individuals who lived in the Jim Crow South. And I have a particular interest in the Jim Crow era because that is the era that my mother and father, uh, Thomas and Ida Mae Williams, uh, grew up in as sharecroppers. But it tells you the story of what it was like in the Jim Crow South, their uh, uh, journey to the North, and what it was like for them. So there's just so much material out there. I think a good place to start would be so, just some some books such as that. Good job, good job. Thank you, Shannon. Lorraine, you've worked in the media for a number of years. What do you think is the narrative, Is if there is one, the narrative that the media puts out to mainstream America about black history. Is there a narrative? Is there a, a profile? Is here's a, this is the way you should consider it. What do you think? I'm not sure I know how to answer that question only except that the media, like all the institutions that address black history tend to focus on the month. And to me, Black excellence is 365. Why not tell these stories in, in a way that is all through the year? And I think we're starting to see a little bit more of that in, in the media, in news, and in, in features that people are producing. Um, so I guess I'm, I, there's some progress, I think, that's being made. And I think that uh, the challenge, really, for media is the the management structure. Uh, even now, for instance, there are still relatively few people of color, women who are in positions of power, whether they're news directors or editors. You will find that, and you've seen, you see it now in some of the popular media that I referred back to. I looked back to um, Lovecraft Country, for instance, the showrunner, black, you know, there are, are writers that are black. And so you start to get a perspective that is going to be a lived experience perspective. 
And until you have more folks who are in those positions to select stories, to pursue stories, and also to frame stories in a way that does reflect that lived experience, then you continue to have this perpetuation of the Black male as being um, a threat, um, this sort of perception of young Black males being more adult and, you know, the, all the things, all the stereotypes that really are not only um, wrong, but they're dangerous. And so I think that it's still important and it's still not happening fast enough. We're seeing some progress, but not, not as much progress as I'd like to see. Lorraine, to, to borrow your, 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 your term, a lived experience, I know that before your father passed, you had an opportunity to interview him for a five-part series. What was that like? And what was the, the outcome? Well, first of all, to put it into context, my dad was a lot older than my mother. So he was about 25 years older, and he was also the youngest of four siblings. And the afterthought, you know, he was about 20 years younger than his next um, youngest brother. And so his life spanned a fascinating arc. One of the stories he would tell me perpetually was sitting around the fireside with his father and the kids and talking about Halley's Comet. Halley's Comet, um, at the time that I interviewed him, was coming around. I think it was 1977. And it came around like every 77 years. And so the context of this five-part series was, here's the man who saw Halley's Comet twice. What happened in those 77 years from when he was a kid sitting around the fireplace and now as he was actually in his last months of life, he passed away in 1989. And um, it was fascinating because he saw, I mean, he lived through Jim Crow. He experienced all the aspects of history that you can imagine. I mean, there was like the end of World War one and there was World War II, the Korean War, all those things. And he saw the tremendous changes that were happening. He talked about Jim Crow, as, as Michael was um, referred to, and about separate and unequal and what that was like. And he also was very optimistic, which I really loved about him. He was always optimistic about the future. So interviewing him was a gift. And from time to time, I go back and play the tape and listen to it to wow. hear his voice because he had a very wonderful way of speaking. He was a speecher, speech maker. He did he was involved in politics and he could, um, he could do an extemporaneous speech at the snap of a finger um, and used to uh, do those kinds of speeches where he would take like some ward leader and somehow connect him with Abraham Lincoln, uh, you know, Teddy Roosevelt, <laughs> FDR, and whatever it was at that time, and do it just like that. He was, he was kind of amazing uh, with that. Maybe I get a little bit of my communication skills. Just, just a little bit, right? Just a little bit. <laughs> Maybe. Mike, let's stick with the family uh, theme here. You did some research 
on your family. You went back, your ancestry. What, what, what motivated you to do that? And what did you find? Uh, I think what motivated me was after my mother passed away in, in uh, 2012, uh, my father passed away in like 92. And just wanting to know more about them. Uh, when my I was in my 20s when my father passed away and I kind of wasn't interested in such things. I had other things on my mind, like a lot of 20 year old men do. Uh, but I was more mature after my mother passed away. And I connected with my oldest sister, Gladys Diggs, uh, who knew my father in his younger years. And I also began to connect with other of the older members of my family. I had my father had uh, three living siblings at the time, and two of them were in their 90s. Wow. And I got to talk to them. They lived in Detroit and Cleveland, and I would call them and just kind of interview them. And they gave me an idea of what it was like to grow up as sharecroppers. And I also talked to my mother's sister, uh, May Lamar, uh, and they told me and explained and described in detail what it was like for them growing up and trying to get education about how their school year was redacted from uh, 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 up until up, they would start school up around November and could only attend until March because it was harvest time in like the October, November, and then it was planting season in March. Uh, what their houses were like, the, the abject poverty uh, that they lived through and the separate but equal times and how they eventually came to the North. Uh, my mother came up, uh, she told me uh, they came up with their items in paper bags. Mm. And uh, these people who were in a lot of senses just, uh, denied education, they went on to buy property and property that their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren are still benefiting from. And so they have a, a lasting legacy, but talking to those elders was, I can't describe how deeply joyous it was for me, just hear them. And I was able to ask them, what did their grandparents look like? And they described what my great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents looked like because they knew them. And so they were able to just pass on that knowledge of uh, what our family has been through. And I, I just look on it as just great achievements to have been treated that way. And what they described growing up as sharecroppers, it was uh, very much akin to what life would have been like as a slave in terms of you were um, relegated to that plantation. They remembered the plantation workers who they worked for, uh, but uh, you would work from literally sun up to sundown, as some people would say, from can't see to can't see. Uh, and they've seen people beaten for like coming back a little late from lunch and they would blow a horn. And so there's just so many aspects in terms of the shacks that they lived in where they had to put newspaper up to, to um, block holes out when it would get a little cooler. Uh, they having one pair of shoes for the year and just settling up. So it, it's just, it was just invaluable being able to talk to a lot of my older relatives. And I recommend that anyone who has yeah. older elder relatives still alive to really talk to them and gain a sense of your history. Well, they should, which means they will have to put down some social media, put down some Netflix, put down some of those other time 
distractors in order to make that quality time to get the history that you're, you're talking about right now. Shannon, what's happening out there in chat, chat room well, world? Some comments in the chat room. Let's see. We've got, uh, and we've got some questions too. So um, W.E.B. Du Bois' book on reconstruction is a good start. So somebody else has put that out there for if you want a little bit more information on Black history. Um, but there's a question in here, in your opinion, why do you think Black history was and is hidden in our society? Oh, well, that's um, white supremacy, essentially. I mean, that's the under current of the origins of this country and um, and it still exists now in forming so much of our institutions and our structures. When you are in, in the, the, the power structure, I guess I would say, um, it, it benefits you to um, erase a people because then that gives you uh, agency to say, I'm better than you, I'm in charge, and you need to listen to me, you need to be subjugated to me. So um, I think uh, a lot of that is really because uh, of the structure that, you know, it, white supremacy isn't what we often associate with white supremacy. It's not people in hoods and robes. It's really the institutional racism that permeates our society. And so when you have a structure like that, it is in the best interest of the power structure to keep people down. You do that by erasing history, by not giving people the opportunity to know who they are and to be proud of who they are. That's good, that's good. Any more, Shan? Let's see here. We have um, a comment and a question. Sometimes the younger generation doesn't seem to connect with our history as a people. What would you recommend to help them understand that their past has a link to their present and ultimately their future? That's good, that's good. Michael, you wanna weigh in? Yeah, I, I would say that, um, you know, our, our young people are, are part of schools and I think it may need to be more incorporated into schools and to see the connection, like a lot of our young people are into hip hop. Well, um, hip hop is a uniquely American, African-American art form. It's an American art form, but crafted by African-Americans. But there are also other forms such as jazz, the blues, um, that are African-American created art forms. And I guess maybe to show the connection and the relevancy and to talk about, let's say, past artists who were the forerunners of uh, I don't know a lot of the rappers that are out today, but a lot of the forerunners uh, uh, of rappers uh, like a James Brown and Sly Stone and people like um, uh, uh, Louis Armstrong and just show the connection. I think showing the connection shows the relevancy of African-American history that all of the people who they listen to stand on the shoulders of those who have come before. And if I could just say something with regards to that last question, yeah, uh, I, I think uh, I, I so agree with what's been said about white supremacy, uh, because I think to hide one's history uh, enables uh, white supremacy to persist. I also think it has historically given uh, uh, an opportunity to oppress 
because having our history hidden sends us the message of worthlessness. And it's also kind of assuages, I think, uh, some white guilt as to they can be oppressed. Because I think the message that has been sent out uh, by white supremacy is that you're subhuman. And that you're, because you're subhuman, you're a brute and a sexual predator. And I think that per has permeated to um, criminal justice system. And also, in, it, it, it permeates all of society. But I think it's permeated to the criminal justice system and even the medical community. And there's so much more I can say about how um, unconscious or implicit bias uh, affects people. Yeah. So much more I can say about that, but I, I'll just <laughs> hold that. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Shannon. Both of you can weigh in on this one. I remember in the 70s when I watched the Roots series. I was livid live it and I still remember being angry and upset with some of the actors the white actors who played their role so real and since then when I watch movies like 12 Years a Slave or 13 I love that the story's being told but it still creates a bittersweet feeling that I have more bitter than sweet how about you when you, you watch the documentaries or the movies or the shows on black stories? Well, it, yeah. uh, oh, go ahead. No, I was saying, what does it leave you with? I, I guess for me, it, I, I feel the same. Um, and, you know, Roots, you had Robert Reed, Mr. Brady, <laughs> slave master, uh, Mr., you know, John Walton from the Waltons playing a, a, a slaver. Uh, but it, it does leave a bittersweet feel. But something like Roots was very educational because even though it was compelling from his story, it was very historical in nature. And I think there was part of his aim to teach uh, the truth of what happened during slavery and post-slavery. But it is bittersweet. But I think we got to know the whole story. We got to know the bad as well as our great triumphs and achievements because you always want, I believe, to, to know the whole story because so much of our story shaped how we are now. And, and just, you know, from a mental health perspective, I think yeah. so many things that have happened in our past have shaped the conditions and even the uh, um, status in life of so many African-Americans. But I think the stories need to be told and it's, it's painful. Uh, even with our, our some of those white actors, um, they had trouble when I, I like to, I'm, I'm a big movie fan and I like to look at the behind the scenes aspects of movies. And a lot of those white actors had trouble playing those roles. Mm. The black actors kind of held them accountable and said, you better play this role to the hill. Oh. So that way the story, I remember uh, Jamie Foxx and um, during the movie Django, they told, uh, I, I can't remember the actor's names, Leonardo DiCaprio. They, he had a lot of trouble playing that role, but they told him to play it to the hilt and do your best work to be able to tell such a story. So I, I'm in total agreement how it is bittersweet, but I think we have to know the whole story. Well, that's that's great intel for me because I'm watching it thinking, you're doing this way too good. No, 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 no. Is this what you're thinking and feeling, Lorraine? Well, I guess I would agree with the both of you. I think that it's important to 
face the difficult truths. And sometimes it's hard. And I have to admit that I have yet to see 12 Years a Slave. I cannot make myself see this movie, which I know I will eventually. But I've just, you know, sometimes this art is really our access to truth. And, and I know how important it is to have that and to experience it because um, as Michael says, it's part, it's part of that whole quilt that is our history. And sometimes you just have to, to face it. I mean, with 13, what it can and I hope does is makes you really angry, makes you angry and say, this is wrong. What can I do? And I hope that that's what in, at its very best, um, this kind of narrative does for us is it allows us to question what is our responsibility here? What is our commitment? And I think that that's the beauty of this art and these stories. And they're hard stories to watch. And I will see 12 Years of Slave, but maybe not this week. <laughs> Next week, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I just, uh, I just don't know. Um, I don't know. I, I feel like later in life that I've gotten a little more sensitive. I found that I could, you know, I could watch anything. Um, but now I find that I'm so deeply affected by things that sometimes it's physically painful to watch some, some of the art that, uh, that is out there and available and that is still wonderful. But I also know that I, I have to. I have to see that because that's another piece of the puzzle. That's part of the narrative that I need to be in touch with. And, and if I could just say a quick thing about 12 Years a Slave. Uh, I did see the movie. Uh, and when I saw it, I literally could not talk. Uh, I went with a group of friends. We like to see socially important movies together so we can discuss it. I, I literally could not talk until the next morning. And, and, and it, it really impacted me deeply. What also impacted me was that the actor who played the role did not win an Oscar. Are you kidding me? <laughs> he played that role. I think that was the year that uh, Matthew McConaughey won for the role that he played. Dallas Buyers Club. Yeah, yeah. Let's 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 stay in this um, narrative a little. Um, the N word has been a part of Black history forever. I despise it but there are those who still use it. People who look like me. It's in the music. It's like my friend, he's my N word. It won't go away. And then the question that some white people will ask, well, if I can't say it, why do you say it? It was supposed to be that. You wanna weigh in on that? Cause it's been, a, it's been a part of black history. Well. I've had um, many shows on this very topic and I've brought together people my age with kids talking about their perspective. Yeah. And I understand, I understand the perspective. I personally cannot say the word and I, you know, I can't, I can't say the word and I, I don't say the word. Um, just like I, you know, I, I, but I, when I hear these kids talking about it, they talk about how they have reconfigured the word 
to take the sting out of it. Mm. And it has a completely different context. I try to understand that. Um, I don't necessarily agree for it for me, but I, I do listen to what they have to say. For them, it has a whole different context and impact. Um, I don't know. What do you think, Michael? I, I remember when Oprah had Jay-Z on her show and they were talking about it and she was anti and he was, he thinks it's okay. Right. And she's like, really? Sean? <laughs> Michael? Well, uh, I think the word will forever have a very derogatory connotation to it in a lot of senses, but also language evolves. And um, the word for a lot of our younger people, I think, has uh, evolved. Uh, I look at, you know, shows such as like Atlanta and um, Insecure and the B word and the N word are used prolifically. <laughs> and it, it doesn't seem to have the sting of attachment as those words used to have. Uh, I think in some ways, African-Americans have begun to take that, that word, the N word on as a term of endearment to a large degree, much like I think uh, individuals like, uh, I have friends within the LGBTQ community who I had to, to expl explain to me this queer thing, that seems derogatory, but yet you're calling yourself queer, I don't, I don't get it. And that's where I had to take a step back and be the student and learn from another culture to get an understanding. Absolutely. So I think there's some similarities there uh, when you look at, I think language does evolve and uh, but it still has the that word still has the stigma, yeah, and the just the, the negative nature to it. I think it's very generational. I'm a baby boomer, and so when I hear the word, I flinch. But you know, that's my generation, and you know, kids that are kids have a very different response to it. So I think it's also generational and. It's also based on maybe our own history and what we experienced and how maybe we were in a situation. I mean, I'm sure we, we all have that story where we were confronted by someone who called us that word and they were a white person. And how did that feel? It felt terrible. Yeah. And so I think that the trauma of that experience, uh, which may not be as universal now as it may have been more when I was coming up or when we were coming up, certainly had an impact as well, I think. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I agree. Because show, those shows I mentioned, Atlanta and Insecure, those shows are geared more towards millennials, African-Americans. And like I said, those words are used prolifically in the humor uh, that they utilize and just their ongoing everyday conversations and the dialogue on the show. Thank you. Shannon, I, I see all this smoke emanating from the chat room. What's happening? <laughs> People are in agreement. There's comments, there's questions. Everyone's agreeing with the, you know, the actors taking on such a realness that they, they dislike them and love certain characters in a certain way. Uh, Carmen, who uh, was in, in the graduate program with Michael said, you know, there was no real cur curriculum developed in the early grades for teaching so many, um, only stuck with MLK and Tubman and, or Douglas. And there was no uh, mandate for teaching black history. Um, you know, even, um, goes on to say that in your graduate program, um, so many of the therapists had just no training or idea of the history of trauma um, and, and triumphs. Uh, so that was really interesting. Um, 
but folks are in agreement saying there's no excuses and do we know where the word has originated? Um, but I'd like to ask both of you a question because, you know, both of you are making black history, right? I mean, it's your present, but when all is said and done, what do you want your legacy to be? Hmm. <laughs> it's funny to think that, you know, when you look back that you are going to be part of black history, right? Because you're living it, right? And it's, there's so much breakthrough and there's so much more to go, but you know, when it's all said and done, what do you, what do you hope your legacy Both is? Both of you are making an amazing impact in the lives of many. Um, Lorraine, I've known you for a couple of years, times 10, mm -hmm. and I just see you, your community work, hear your voice on the radio. You're always out there fighting, you're marching, you're educating. I remember you coming to one of my classes and speaking to a, a MBA group of students sharing thoughts on media. And Michael, everything I've learned about you, my research on you, sports aficionado, studying Ken Burns, Jackie Robinson, at church, therapist, you guys are just making a huge difference. So I did that to give you time to think. So Shannon's question was, what do you want your legacy to be? <laughs> why, why, Lorraine, why don't, you, why don't you lead off? Okay, well, I guess I would hope that um, on my tombstone, <laughs> they say, like Buffy Summers and Buffy the Vampire Slayer, you know, she saved the world a lot. Well, maybe that's uh, an exaggeration and um, an overstatement, but I, I just want people to remember me as someone who tried to help mm. to ease a life, to be able to amplify a voice that might not otherwise have been heard. And I think that's what I would like my legacy to be. Humble, humble, humble. Nothing's ever changed. <laughs> Michael, how about you? I, I, when I think about legacy, I think about my children, of course. I have three sons who I love dearly. I, I definitely want to leave an impact on them uh, so they can leave a legacy to my grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Uh, but I also, when I think about my legacy, is I, I want to leave impact on people. Uh, I, I've taken on this idea of being a restorer, and I wouldn't be a pastor if I if I didn't mention just one Bible verse that I think uh, <laughs> sums me up just a bit. It says, "Your people will rebuild ancient ruins and and will raise up the age old foundations. You will be called a repairer of broken walls, a restorer of streets with dwellings." And so, I guess what I want to achieve. I work with a lot of people within the criminal justice system you know, uh, uh, offenders, uh, and I work with, um, I specialize in trauma and individuals who have been wounded by life and dare I say, even wounded by the legacy of oppression in this country. So I, I wanna be remembered as a, one who fought to restore people, to kind of bring back their dignity, their esteem, mm. their worth and value. So in, in a nutshell, um, that's how I would answer that. Thank you, thank you, Shannon. Lorraine, I know time is getting away, but I wanted to ask you this. Can you tell us about the Gloria Ballard story? Who's Gloria Ballard and, and, and what happened? Well, um, I'm on LinkedIn, as I'm sure all of you are. And all of a sudden I got this message from Gloria Ballard. Gloria Ballard is the, 
the granddaughter of my uncle. And she lives down in Nashville. And she's been kind of like the designated histor- Ballard historian. And so she told me, and she, she told me that my picture as a toddler was in their living room, you know, sitting there on, you know, a bureau or something. And she saw it every day. It was just there, the little me, you know, with my little pinafore and my hair and pigtails. And, and so um, she had tried to reach to me, reach out to me previously, but finally through LinkedIn, she did. And so we began a correspondence with one another. And I eventually, my son and I traveled down to Nashville and met. And so I met her for the first time. And her house was this treasure trove of Ballard history. It was amazing. All the photographs of my uncles and these books of, from Tuskegee Institute of which they had all graduated, my dad and all my uncles. And uh, just to see that, to see a, an old spinning wheel, to see an old camera, one of my uncles was a photographer, was just a fabulous. It was amazing to see and also to connect with family. I have to say that because of a lot, you know, family is full of drama, right? So my dad had been married and widowed and he ended up marrying my mother many years after that. Um, and she was the same age as his and my, my, my half sister. So, um, and she's Japanese, by the way, or was Japanese, she's passed away. And so if you can imagine this very middle class, black family, you know, kind of well known in that neighborhood, and all of a sudden, my dad comes back from, you know, being stationed in Japan with this war bride, and it didn't go it didn't go well. Uh, So for the longest time, I didn't have much contact with that side of the family. So I basically was raised kind of as an only child without family. And so after my dad passed away, I started to really connect with members of my family. And when I met with Gloria, it was the final piece to that puzzle where I finally got to see the beauty of this Ballard family that I had never had the opportunity to really get to know. And I can't, I can't even tell you, describe how that felt. It felt like to be able to say, this person is my blood relative. I can't even tell you that, you know, that there's something that's absolutely magical about that. I don't even know how to explain it. But this person is my blood relative. And it meant so much to me. And I, I just am forever grateful. We're still in touch. Ooh. She is a, a journalist, um, worked uh, for the Tennessean as a journalist for many, many years. She's retired now and teaches uh, creative writing. But uh, it was an amazing gift and one that I will always treasure and, and just love the fact that I've re- she helped me reconnect with the Ballard family. So that has what a, what a phenomenal phenomenal story michael I, I know you studied black history as it relates to sports as well i'm reminded of the story that i heard with jackie robinson that, that when they would travel the team he could not get in certain restaurants to eat and was wasn't allowed and one time the team went in the restaurant to eat and they brought food out for him to eat and he's like i'm not eating that food 
if we don't eat as a team, we're not going to be together. Don't bring it out to me. I'm not eating that. We're going to go someplace where we all can eat together. Any quick stories come to mind about Jackie Robinson or, or sports, how far Blacks have come? Yeah, um, I think we've come a long way. Um, you know, there's recently been controversy in the NFL. Um, and I'm a huge football fan, but uh, oh, I have. That's a whole show right there. We got we to bring you back to talk about that. <laughs> I, I tweeted the NFL and said, uh, you know, they've apologized to uh, Colin Kaepernick, but I'd like to see minority ownership in the NFL. But I think when I look back at those here, one of the books I'm trying to read, and I have difficulty finding time to read, reading the, um, the a biography about Satchel Paige uh, and the sacrifices that the men in the Negro Leagues had to make. And even Jackie Robinson was a Negro Leaguer. And in that Ken Byrne documentary, it talks a great deal about some of the sacrifices he made. He was actually uh, had a famous court martial uh, I believe during World War II because he refused to get off a bus. I think he was an army officer. And when they would be barnstorming with games in the Negro Leagues, Jackie Robinson, uh, they would have to buy bus, I mean, gas for their bus. And he would refuse to say, if we cannot use your facilities, we will not buy gas here. Wow. So he was, even though he was one of the younger players, he took sure. leadership in um, fighting for equal rights and equal justice in, in, in those times. It's powerful, powerful. We're at that point in the show where, since I'm a speaker and I speak for a living, I ask our guests to speak or give a mini, M-I-N-I, a mini keynote presentation. No more than 30 seconds. But for you to look into that, that camera, Pretend like you're standing on stage and you're bringing your presentation home. Give us 30 seconds on a call to action relative to black history, empowerment, justice, equality, your call. Lorraine, I'm gonna give you the mic first. Your call to action. My call to action is to keep learning, keep being open and become an anti-racist. Really, that means fighting against racism. It's not enough to be tolerant. We have to take action because we can't move forward as a nation until all of us are given opportunities that all of us are seen as human beings that are precious, have value, and have something to contribute. We all have that responsibility no matter what our skin color is, no matter what our background is, between us as folks in our community and those who are allies, we must work together so that we can move forward. Ooh, mic drop. Mr. Williams, 30 seconds starts now. The motto of America is e pluribus unum, out of many, one. And I think that uh, we all have to take action to realize that it takes all of us to have a sound community. It takes sacrifice on everyone's parts so that all of us can have, uh, all of us should have health care. All of us should be able to grow out of poverty. So I think we need to take action in regards to teaching as well. I think we have to take action in reading and just being knowledgeable about the issues that are taking place in our day so that way we can continue advancement 
uh, that we have made over the years. We're great people, but we must learn more. And there's a need for the knowledge of ourselves. Beautiful, Shannon, another successful flight. We did it. No, uh, I don't want to land the plane. I want to <laughs> keep my seatbelt fastened. I want to get back on takeoff. It's such a rich topic. And I just thank you both for sharing your heart today and your, your knowledge. And, you know, I thank you, Dr. James, for creating a platform in this day and age where people still are apprehensive about speaking out. So I just want to thank everybody that's joined us today and, and everyone listening and for our panelists and for you too, Dr. James, because we need to stop being silent. We need to be educated. And you know what? The best time is now. It's time. And uh, I just want to thank, again, TGIT. Thank God it's Tuesday. Again, I'm full and I haven't even had lunch is what I'm trying to say, Dr. James. <laughs> both, both Lorraine and Michael said we need to take action. I'm going to add a letter to that. Take action now. We need to work on our tan, no pun intended, but take action now. I want to thank you two for bringing your, your wisdom, your heart, your soul to the program we so appreciated that. And for those of you who are out there, I hope it was enriching for you. And I hope you continue to spread the word because black history is everyone's history. It's not just a month, it's not an event, it's for all of us all the time. We'll see you next week. And remember, you've just been gympacted. Take care. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.